I was reading a book some years ago that was telling a story, the author was telling a story of an experience that he had as a conference speaker travelling as they are inclined to do through various airports and he was sitting at an airport, he happened to be sitting next to a young lady, early 20s probably, Uh, they fell into conversation, he learnt a little bit about her life and discovered in the conversation that her life hadn't, hadn't been particularly easy. And as they were just sitting there in sporadic conversation, their eyes happened to fall upon an elderly couple sitting perhaps a little distant to them and they watched with rapt attention as the elderly man attended to the needs of his wife. His wife was uh, invalided, she was in a wheelchair. I have a picture in my mind of a a lady with grey hair, no offence to anyone here with grey hair, uh, with perhaps a, a crocheted shawl across her shoulders and he attended to her needs in a manner that was just amazing and staggering in its, in its beauty. He helped her with a cup of tea. He helped her with some food. He opened the food for her. He made sure that she was comfortable, that she had every one of her needs met. You can just imagine that illustration, can't you? You can imagine that happening. And as they were sitting there, the young woman said to no one in particular, I wish I had someone who would love me like that. I wish I had someone who would love me like that. And it struck the author in that moment that perhaps never in her life had she experienced grace and kindness expressed in such a way. I wish I had someone that loved me like that. Isn't that the cry of so many hearts? This desire, hunger to be loved, to be accepted, to be wanted, to be cared for by somebody, to have somebody who would just attend to your needs and not judge you for your circumstance, not uh, isolate you, not treat you differently, just to embrace you with love. I wish I had someone that loved me like that. Well, just hold that thought for a few moments, we'll come back to that, it has... Uh, a great application in the topic that we're going to talk about today, Jesus Emmanuel. I'm at a little disadvantage um, today in the sense that what happens on the screen behind me, I can't see in front of me, so if I jump the screen like I did a few moments ago, just say, David, you're on the wrong screen, okay? Otherwise, I'll be doing this all all the time. We're going to talk about um, today one of the descriptions, we might say, given to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. It's actually the blending of a number of words. The word El in Hebrew means God and the word El was applied with some other words to describe God on occasion. So, for instance, uh, God is known through the Old Testament as El Roy, the God who sees me, El Shaddai, the God of heaven, or El Elyon, the Most High God. And the name Emmanuel, God with us is very familiar to us. It's used in the New Testament. I wonder if anyone wants to have a guess. No prizes, no condemnation. How many times is it used in the New Testament? How many times is Jesus referred to as Emmanuel in the New Testament? Don't be scared, you might win the prize. Oh no, I said there was no prizes. (laughs) You, You might be the one who gets it right. 50 times. Who said that? Great guess, Liz, but a little on the high side. 
Rob says four, getting closer, but still a bit on the high side. One time, just one time. It's funny, isn't it? We, it's such a familiar name to us. We sing about it. O come, O come, Emmanuel. I was tempted to sing for you today for all of about two-tenths of a second. Uh, but that word, that name is so familiar to us and yet it's only used one time in the New Testament. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And Matthew has taken that name directly from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, one of the only other places where that name is used in the Old Testament. Now, Matthew understood this to be, uh, this reference from Isaiah, to be a prophetic reference to Christ and so applied it to Jesus. And that is uh, it's not unusual in the sense that the New Testament authors understood that many things said through the Old Testament were prophetic. But today what I want to do with you just for a few moments, instead of defaulting to thinking about this from New Testament, uh, from, with New Testament eyes, is to think about what it actually meant back in the Old Testament and then understand what it means from a New Testament perspective. Because I believe the whole Bible is inspired by God. I know I spoke at a church one time where someone said to me, the preacher here or the pastor here has never spoken from the Old Testament. It's kind of past history. We don't need the Old Testament. Only the New Testament, that's all we need. And so when I was preaching at church, guess where I preached from? <laughs> Old Testament. That was a little bit rude probably. Um, but it was based on the, on the very uh, reasonable belief that God has revealed himself progressively through the ages from the very beginning of the Old Testament right through to the very end of the New Testament. So let's go back to Isaiah and to do that I need you to stand up for just one moment. I'm mindful that we have short attention spans in this post-COVID world. You can't turn off the screen and go and get a coffee just now so stand up, just stand up, there's no pain in this space. And what I'd like you to do, if you're able to stand up, I notice a couple of people are kind of encumbered with babies and stuff, um, just take seven small steps to the uh, west, just count your steps, just little ones, otherwise you'll open up through the door, or out the wall. And now seven small steps back again, because we're going back uh, to the time of Isaiah. Now you're back where you start, another seven small steps in the opposite direction, uh, and once you get to that point, another seven small steps back. This has achieved two purposes. When you're back to your position, you can sit down again. Um, first of all, <laughs> it's helped break your attention span a bit. But you've taken 28 steps, representative of one step for every century that we need to go back because Isaiah was writing at a time around about 8th century BC. It's a long time ago. 2,800 years ago. It's a time, and we'll go to the screen here, let's see if we can get it, thank you, Tim. It's a time, whoops, too far, uh, it's a time when the kingdom of Israel, which God intended to be a united kingdom, was a kingdom split in two. And you might be familiar with a little bit of the biblical history after the united kingdom, Saul, David and Solomon, the kingdom broke apart arguments between various people who wanted to be king and so in the south we had the kingdom of Judah, you'll see there in, uh, in light blue, and in the north the kingdom of Israel, competing cities that wanted to be the capital, Jerusalem 
in the south, Samaria there in the north, although there were shrines at Shechem and there was even um, a shrine built up right in the far north at Dan at one stage during this history. And there was all sorts of stuff going on in the world at the time. You can see from this little map here, there was a great kingdom rising that we might be familiar with called the Assyrians. The Assyrians could best be described as some really, really bad customers. They had some of the most horrendous practices in war of any people to that time and so we were greatly feared. I'm not even going to begin describing some of the things they did to their enemies. It was just abhorrent. And the Assyrians in the dark blue at this stage, at this time in the 8th century BC, they were gaining in power and there was much fear through the region. What's going to happen if these Assyrians gain ascendancy? And so what was happening was there were all sorts of alliances being formed. Countries that normally wouldn't become friends became friends. You know the old adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend kind of thing. And around about this time, there was some stuff happening. Now, before I tell you what was happening, uh, we need to um, give you some, some names just to hang on to because it's going to get a little bit confusing. To make it really simple, uh, we have the first character who was Ahaz. He's going to be the main character in the story here today. Ahaz was the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay, so we're good with that. Who was Ahaz? Okay, you with me? We have Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. Sometimes Israel is called Ephraim in this story, the northern kingdom. So we've got the two of them, the two kings in the Israel kind of area. And the third character is King Rezan of Aram. Now, Aram was an area a little bit to the northeast, around about where Syria is today. And underneath this growing Assyrian empire that I showed you before, it was over this side. These guys are very much part of the story and here is the start of the story. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezan of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David, that is the house of Judah, the southern kingdom was told, Aram has aligned itself with Ephraim. Aram had aligned itself with Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now in those days, as I said, when you see this great power rising in the northeast, Assyria, there were alliances made. The king of Aram said to the king of Israel, let's get together and make an alliance. Let's see if we can include Ahaz in the south. We'll make a three-way alliance. But Ahaz actually said, no, I'm not interested in that alliance. And so uh, the... Um, Ar uh, king of Aram and the king of Israel decided to go up against the king of Judah. Are we good so far? Do I need to start again? Okay. Then the stories continue. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. I love how... how detailed God's uh, instructions were to Isaiah about where he was to meet Ahaz. Say to him, verse 4, be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. What good advice in any situation. Be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smouldering stumps of firewood 
because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of, and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, another name for Israel, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Some really wonderful descriptions there, isn't it? Uh, here's Ahaz who's kind of shaking in his boots. We've already discovered earlier in the text there that the whole people were shaken as the trees of the forest were shaken. You were outside yesterday, what time? Around five o'clock. There was a bit of wind like we don't normally experience. The trees were shaken around. Well, the whole nation was shaken and the Lord came into that space and said, don't worry about those two smouldering stubs of firewood. What a wonderful, wonderful insult. No? They're nothing to me, God says. Don't worry about them. Just stay calm, be careful. Don't be afraid. And then God went on to explain what would happen, what these upstarts were hoping for would not happen. It will not take place, it will not happen for the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Ramaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So God has said, what, uh, what these two characters think is about to happen isn't going to happen. They're nothing to me. They're nobodies in my economy. Within 65 years, Israel, the northern kingdom known as Ephraim here, will be too shattered to be a people. But then that little piece of advice in verse 9 is, uh, is really telling, isn't it? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Because there's an appeal here by God to stand, Ahaz, stand in faith, trust in me. Rely on my capacity to do what I am saying. God's made it really clear to Ahaz that he had this matter under control. But I guess Ahaz was kind of pacing backwards and forwards in, in, in he didn't live in a castle, did he? Uh, in, in the king's palace, wondering what was going to happen. Can I trust God? What's going to happen is, this, is there some sort of resolution possible in this space? How can I have faith? God said he'll be with me, can I trust him in that? And no doubt God was aware of Ahaz's wavering faith and so God said something quite remarkable in verse 11. He said to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. What an amazing statement. Ask the God, ask, God, ask your God rather for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. I don't know about you, but there's been lots of times where I've said, oh God, just show me, you know, give me a sign. Confirm this is your will somehow. Show me something. And what generally happens in that space is I just have to step out in faith and trust that God's word is good and uh, find the way. But Ahaz, he was, he was blessed with this promise that God made where God said to him, I will give you any sign you like, whatever you like, the biggest in the heavens, the biggest down on earth, whatever it's up to you, what would you like? All Ahaz had to do was press in in faith. And all Ahaz did was respond like this, because Ahaz said, I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now you might think, okay, I know the scripture, uh, back in Deuteronomy, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test like the people did back at the time of Meribah. 
talks about that in the New Testament. I think Jesus might have even quoted those words during the temptation, you know. The scripture says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Ahaz's response looks godly, doesn't it? But it's not. It's actually, uh, what's a good word? It's identified here as being an act of piety, not an act of faith. And there's a big difference between those two. Back in the times of, uh, of the Exodus, yes, the people put the Lord God to the test. They s- s- virtually dared God to do what he said he would do. You know, if you really are God, then do this. That's the kind of test that Jesus was talking about. This test was perfectly legitimate. God said, ask for anything. And Ahaz had an opportunity to step into that space in faith and refused to do that. It was an act of piety uh, rather than an act of faith. And let me just tell you, as we think about this for a second, uh, piety is a dangerous, dangerous expression of, of faith. Piety is a little bit like what um, Paul described in 2 Timothy. He says it's a form of powerless godliness. It's going through the motions. It's religion without content. It's a byproduct of faith, it's not the end product of faith. And it's worth um, reflecting on this for just a moment because I think that um, piety is alive and well in our day. It's alive in those places where the practice of religion is more important than the exercising of faith. It's alive in those places where people are more concerned about how they look as Christians than how they act as Christians. It's found when the church is more concerned with its reputation in the world than the reputation of Christ in the world. Piety is actually thinly veiled hypocrisy because it's more concerned with how things look on the, on the outside than on sustained faithful obedience exercised toward God. An author by the name of James Nestington said, you can always hear the difference between faith and piety in the verbs. Piety says, I did this, I'll do that, whereas faith says, he did this, he will do that. Piety says, you know, I've committed my life to Christ, whereas faith says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's a big difference, isn't there, between piety and faith. Ahaz's response was actually not all that different to uh, to Peter. You remember the time when uh, the disciples had been out fishing, they hadn't caught anything. Jesus said, off you go, we'll, we'll have one more try. They caught this great pile of fish. What did Peter do in that space? He fell at the knees of Jesus. He said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's a pious response. Because Jesus was actually inviting him into the fullness of who he was. And Peter says, no, 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 I'm sinful, I don't want you there. That's piety, not faith. And Ahaz's response is very similar to that. God actually wanted Ahaz to to know that he would be with him in the face of the testing. But Ahaz hid behind piety instead. And had he not done so, history may well have been very, very different. Because God uh, responded in this way. He said these words, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Would you try the patience of God also? You can hear the rebuke in this space, can't you? Therefore, now we're getting down to the meaty part, 
the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, we read those words, uh, particularly the warning there, and that doesn't mean too much to us, but... uh, when Ahaz heard those words in verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and your people and the house of Judah uh, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away. He will bring the king of Assyria. He must have realised what an awful mistake he'd made. What a dreadful warning that is. And the sign will be, as it says there in verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, We read that with New Testament glasses on, right? Who is that talking about? We say Jesus. Good answer. And biblical prophecy works in that way. It it, it meant something to the original hearers and if it doesn't mean something to the original hearers, there's a problem and it means something to the future as well. That's how God works through his word. But what did it mean to the original hearers? That's the first question we need to ask in this space because if we don't understand that, We're at risk of making a mistake in applying it down the track. We read this born of a virgin and all that and we think, wow, it's talking about Jesus. But the original recipients had no idea about Jesus. They weren't saying, ah, that's a prophecy of the Messiah. It had to mean something to them in that space. And most commentators believe that this passage is actually speaking about Isaiah's personal circumstances. Isaiah had been married, he had a son. Uh, we believe that his wife had passed away and that at some stage later in his life he remarried. At this point the prophecy seems to be saying that his future wife, who at this point was an unmarried maiden, a virgin, would fall pregnant. There's no suggestion it would be by anything other than the normal uh, process and this, uh, this child would be born and would be known as Emmanuel, God with us. Because that's what God wanted Ahaz to understand that despite this growing geopolitical torment all around you, this turmoil in the world, God is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And before he turned 12 years of age, which is kind of what that language is talking about there where it speaks about him uh, eating curds and honey and so on, all of these things that you're worried about, they will have fallen away. These kings who are threatening you right now, they will be destroyed And as it turned out, um, that did happen. As history tells us, Ahaz refused to make an alliance with uh, the kings of the north and in fact, Ahaz went and sought an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser who was the uh, Assyrian king and things went really badly as a result of that because he had to pay an enormous tribute to the Assyrians and uh, the people rebelled in that space and history tells us that things went really, really badly. And in a very real sense, the prophecy and, the, uh, and ultimately the birth and naming of the child was a sign that God would provide, that he would be with his people and all they had to do was have faith. All they had to do was have faith. And, th- and that's consistent with 
what God has revealed of himself through the Old Testament, in fact the entire Old Testament, what we might call the Emmanuel theme runs through the Old Testament, this idea of God with us because from the very start when Adam and Eve first rebelled in the garden, what did God do? He went looking for them. I want to be with you. Right through the history of God's people we see this covenant that God made with them. Uh, He desires to be with his people. He's always been searching for his people. He's always been working to redeem them, always wanting to be the fulfilment of the promise that he made where he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. In fact, the thing that distinguished the people of Israel from all others was that God was present with them. Jump to Exodus chapter 33. Let's just make sure we've got that there. Uh, Moses said, how will anyone know you are pleased with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? It's your presence. It's the presence of God. And Matthew, coming to the New Testament, now that we've looked at the Old uh, and understood it in that context, Matthew realised that even though it applied, yes, in Isaiah's situation, it was a prophetic word from the Lord that could be applied to Jesus, the most beautiful and, and perfect expression of God's presence with his people. And so there, right at the very beginning of Matthew, Uh, Matthew's Gospel, he identifies Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And then if we trace the story of Jesus through the Gospel records, we see Jesus doing acts of uh, healing the sick and casting out demons, giving sight to the blind and healing lepers and raising the dead and declaring time and time again through his actions that I am God with you, Emmanuel, I'm amongst you. I'm here. And as we trace uh, this, we come to uh, the Great Commission there in Matthew uh, towards the end of his Gospel where Jesus says to his, uh, his disciples, um, go into all of the world. In fact, we've got that on the screen too if you'd like to have a look at that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. This promise that continually works itself out through history. And it doesn't even stop there for those of you who have been with us in the past will know as we worked our way through the book of Acts we reflected on the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ who lives in those who believe and trust in his name. God's presence with us. Emmanuel, God with us uh, as we walk, as we journey, as we go through life. I remember uh, years ago, um, I was told you a story a few weeks ago, of the golf, uh, the golf course incident. <laughs> I sold this idea that I, uh, I lived on a golf course because I was new in the school and lonely and all that kind of stuff. Um, around the same time, I remember an incident, I was... Um, I took up football umpiring. It was kind of fun. You could be part of the game without carrying all the injuries. And um, there was an incident one time between one of the players and one of the um, staff who was umpiring and I was called on to be a witness in, I guess you call it the tribunal. And as a young Christian man, I decided, well, the only option for me really is to tell the truth, to say it as I saw it. And as it turned out, it... um, 
it was evidence that didn't uh, make some of my colleagues in the class look particularly good. In fact, they were in the wrong. It's the basic premise of it. They'd done the wrong thing, one in particular. I can still remember his name. Do you want me to say it? <laughs> no, I better not. <laughs> well, let me just tell you, in that space, he and his cohort of... Um, uh, well, as, let's just leave it as a cohort, his cohort of uh, friends... There are other, other descriptions. They decided to make my life miserable. And I felt even more loneliness in that space. Isolated, you know, um, persecuted perhaps. And I can remember to this very day, I could take you to the spot if it was still there, I doubt that it is, walking across the quadrangle in the school towards the notice boards and just in that space of feeling alone and and well, what other words, you know, uh, suddenly this overwhelming sense of God's presence, that I wasn't alone. And actually taking a stand and doing the right thing in that space had made me very unpopular with a certain group of people, most of whom probably ended up in prison. Um, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, but in that moment, it was just one of those beautiful gifts that God gave me and maybe you've had this experience too where there's just been a crisis of some sense or some nature and God's peace just flowed in and I thought, what does it matter? I've got the Lord. Well, no, that's actually the wrong, that's piety. Uh, the Lord's got me. <laughs> God just filled that space of loneliness and emptiness and filled it with this sense of overwhelming love that I look back to now and I see as one of those markers in the roadmap of faith and maybe you've done this exercise too where you've looked back and said well this is the points of my life where God has intervened where I knew God was with me where I knew I was loved by someone who was much bigger than the circumstances I was involved in who could see the end from the beginning which I talked about earlier in the service who had this in control And those actions, that, that moment of filling in some senses um, satiated, it, it satisfied a longing that I talked about at the start of the service, that longing that was expressed by that young woman at the airport. If only there was somebody who would love me like that. You see, the author of the book went on to say, I'd love to have had a conversation with this young woman and said, you know, there is someone who can love you like that, but you won't find it in a human that's something really important we need to point out. The, the love that was being expressed by that elderly man and that elderly woman was a beautiful thing, a beautiful illustration of a gift of love expressed between two people. But if we look to have that hunger in our hearts satisfied in its totality by someone else, we'll always come up short. God does gift us with relationship that nourishes us and fills us and brings us life, but it's never going to fill us in the same way that God can. And if we look to someone else to do only what God can do, there's going to be strife, let me tell you. But that cry of the heart, if only someone could love me like that, was satisfied in that moment as I experienced there walking across the triangle. If only someone could love me like this, this was my experience, God with us. And that's the great promise of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the God who dwells with us, the God who lives with us, the God who journeys with us through whatever circumstances, whatever strife, whatever trials, whatever experiences that we might have. Jesus, Emmanuel, somebody who does 
love us like that. Let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks that you are God with us. Lord, this is not just some kind of airy-fairy concept. It's actually been realised in truth as we've experienced the presence of your Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that the Spirit that we sing about, the Spirit that we talk about, the Spirit that we read about is amongst us and it is none other than the Spirit of the living Jesus. It's you, Lord. It's you who live with us. Lord, we want to thank you. Father, we pray that we might learn today to walk uh, more faithfully with you, responding to your prompts, guarding uh, those areas that you would not want us to go into, refusing to step outside your will. Lord, we thank you that we have experienced your presence and so we have a message for others in our world that you are the one who can love us like no one else. You are the one who can satisfy that hunger in our heart like no other. Lord, we pray too today that you would protect us from piety, from the exercise of religion, from holding on to tradition, from going through the motions, from being more concerned about what other people think of us than what you might want us to do for you. Lord, that's such an easy trap to fall into. Lord, we would pray that you would renew your church, renew your people, renew the work that you're doing amongst us. Call us with fearless abandon into the faith that you want us to have. And may we see uh, the joy of a Lord in that space. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories from the Old Testament that so enrich our understanding of the New Testament for the way we see your hand revealed through history time and time and time again, for the consistency there is in your character and the revelation of who you are. Lord, bless us today as we go with your word in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.